Women Bridging the Gap is a freewheeling conversation co-hosted by Lenya Wilson and myself, Alexandra Detalia. Listen to our conversations while we discuss race and womanhood at the hearth level. So I work from home, right? So normally I wake up around like 6.37. That's my normal wake up schedule. But since we do CrossFit, we've been waking up at 5.30. But I was very skeptical about doing CrossFit because I was like, who on earth wakes up at 5.30? Like, no one, why would anyone do that, right? Right. Me too, I love it now. <laughs> but before I started doing it, I'm like, this is madness. Why would we do this? Like I was so like against the idea. So we're like, whatever, whatever. Let's, let's just try. Let's just see how we feel for a couple of days and let's see. And then we started doing it. And like, it's, to me, it's a cheat code. Waking up that early and starting your day with the workout has literally changed my life. Like I, I would never not start my day with the workout, like mm-hmm. early, that early. So I'm hooked on it. So we- Tell me how you get out of bed. How do you not play the game? Like I'll just snooze and then you hit snooze 10 times and then all of a sudden it's later than your normal wake up time. Yeah. Kick in Alex. And so you don't think about it anymore because I did the 5 a.m. workout for what? Three years. Remember I I did the morning workout. I would, but I would work, I would start at six, do the 6 a.m. work. The gym opened at six and I would work out for three hours. In, but it's 6 a.m. And after, I don't know, you know, maybe a few months, I didn't even think about it anymore. I mean, I obviously was the that person that was asleep at 8.30 <laughs> or 9 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, you know, like I just was not hanging out. And, I'm, and I was fine with that. <laughs> Kendi, what time do you go to sleep now? I try to be in bed no later than 10.30. All right. Well, there's so, the, yeah, but, but you're young. he's younger and yeah. you're only doing a one hour class, right? One yeah, hour see, class. that's the difference. That's yeah. the big difference. He's younger and then he's only doing one hour class. I would yeah. do a three hour workout and that's insane. I was in my fifties. What? So that's, that's wow. I, I couldn't even imagine. <laughs> no, I don't have time for three hours. <laughs> <laughs> well, not now. You have a lot going on. And so with that, let's start. Introduce yourself to our listeners. Awesome. So first of all, thank you guys so much for having me. I know Alex and I talked about doing this and I, I was so excited to come on. I heard great things about Lenya too. So I just figured this would be a dynamic <laughs> conversation. So yeah, definitely. Thank you guys for having me. My name is Kendaya Ragbe. I am a personal development coach. So what I essentially do is partner with young athletes to ensure that they have a tr- like a transition program in place for life post-basketball or post-sport. What else about me? I'm a first-generation Nigerian. So I was born here in the States. My parents are from Nigeria, which is in West Africa. And yeah, what else do you want to know? Well, we'll just get started, but that was a good start. So what everybody doesn't really know is that you began this personal development coaching. So what people don't know is that you decided to sort of pursue personal development working, work with others like young athletes because of your own experience as a basketball player. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit about sort of your basketball career? I know I've heard about it, but when you hasn't, I started playing, I played basketball my whole life. I started playing basketball when I was about uh, age eight. 
And I was like, prior to that, I played soccer, actually, because my dad played soccer when he was a young kid. So soccer was the first sport I was actually introduced to around age five. But then at age eight, one of my neighbors just showed me like basketball. I just went to his house. We started playing basketball. And from that day, I just literally, I stopped playing soccer like that day. And my dad was so mad at me, but <laughs> yeah, but I just, well, I was a natural American sport. I mean, basketball is really such an American sport and, and yeah. soccer, football is really an international sport. And I'm sure international. it was football that was being played. So of yeah. course, he was upset that you were not following his footsteps. He um, was, he definitely was. So but he quickly that? saw that I was like a natural at basketball. Like it just came naturally to me. So from that point, I fell in love with the game. I was like fully dedicated. And like at a very early age, I had NBA aspirations, like very early. And a lot of, and we'll talk a little more about this, but a lot of my upbringing was really just sacrificing for basketball. Like I, at age 16, I went to prep school. So I left home at age 16. Wait a minute, where did you grow up? Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. So between South LA, Inglewood, and Moreno Valley, I kind of okay. kind of back and forth. Yeah. So that's where I grew up, between those two places. Was basketball in the ethos there? I mean, it's just like when I was in school, I mean, it was a long time ago, but, you know, everybody was really into my whole grammar school. Like, everybody played soccer or football. Like, those were the two. Those were two. And then in high school, it was like all of a sudden, everybody wanted to play basketball. So, and that was yeah. everybody was playing so yep. was it just everybody was into it or was it something special and a little bit unique to you? Everyone I knew was playing. And okay. I, would, I would actually go even further and say, like, this Southern California region is actually one of the, like, hotbeds for basketball in the whole, really in the whole world, to be honest with you. Even if you look at, like, the NBA, most of the top players come are based out of Southern California. Yeah. So when I was coming up, it was a big deal for sure. And that was between LA and even the Inland Empire, which is where I was as well. So, okay. So then you said you were 16 and you went to prep school. Is there a story there? Yeah. So as I stated, you know, coming up in Moreno Valley, like basketball was just, it was everything. And so when I was coming up, like everyone, everyone I knew was like really scratching and clawing and trying to position themselves to really advance their game and their career. And when I went to high school, high school in Moreno Valley for my first two years, I went to Canyon Springs High School and I played there for two years and I did well. But at that time I was coming up, going to prep school was like a popular route that a lot of players did. And the reason why they did it was to really put themselves in an environment that was primarily focused on basketball in school. That was it. So if you went to prep school, it was, you know, it was like boarding school. Like you literally had dorms. Some had some people went to all boys schools, like whatever, whatever was, you know, fitting for that person. So my journey was a little different because at that time, most guys would go to the East Coast for prep school. Mm -hmm. I strangely met a coach who was coaching in Mississippi, of all places. Shout out to Mississippi. And so I, I went from California to Mississippi. It was quite an experience. That makes sense, though. There's a lot of those guys come from the, from the South. I mean, Michael Jordan went to, you know, North Carolina. Yeah, well, for college, is different. For prep school, it's, when I was coming up, it was basically unheard of. Nobody was going to prep school in, in the South, especially not Mississippi. Mississippi is not really known to have prep schools, but there was, like, one boarding school in particular. 
they had a new coach. They were like, you know, rebranding their program. It was like a whole new renaissance going on at that time. And so I kind of caught, I just happened to fall in. And so I ended up going there. And the reason why I'm saying that really is to outline this, the sacrifice that I was sort of doing all in the, in the name of basketball. It was like, it was totally my idea. Like, I remember telling my parents, like, hey, I want to go to prep school. And I was 16 at the time. And they were like, you want to leave home? You sure? And I'm like, yeah, I want to I leave my high school that I loved. And I want to take my career serious and go to prep school. But it's still a sacrifice leaving home, you know, and deciding that, that basketball is so much of your focus that you're going to just pursue this with, you know, everything. Because I guess that's what that is, isn't it? Yeah. That's a big sacrifice for a 16-year-old. Absolutely. And I look back on it and I'm just like, well, I had some guts because, I mean, funny story. You guys are going to laugh at this. I, so my mom supports me. My dad supports me. and Everything's good. And then my mom, remember our first day there, my mom takes me, you know, I'm in my dorm and she, we, we do it like a Walmart trip. So I felt like I was going to college, first day of college, yeah. felt like that. And, you know, she gets me all my bedding. She gets me some snacks, all this stuff. And we check into my dorm and she's like, okay, are you good? I'm like, yeah. She's like, all right, I'm headed to the airport. And I'm like, wait, you're leaving right now? Like, where are you, where are you going? Like, we just got here. She's like, what do you mean we just got here? You mean you just got here? Like, I'm not, you're the one that's here. I have to go. Are you good? Do you need anything? And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess I'm good. And I promise you, that night, I cried like a baby. <laughs> I'm not lying to you. I cried, I, I cried the whole night. I'm like, what did I get myself into? Like, I had... I was, it was culture shock, being away from home for the first time, just all of it. It just like, in that moment, it hit me and I was like, wow, what am I doing? So it was tough. It was tough. But eventually, you know, I just focused on why I was there and managed to get through it. So where did you go to college? I went to two colleges. I went to Northeastern University, which is in Boston mm -hmm. for two years. And then I transferred to American International, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. And you played basketball for both? Yep, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And were you part of the draft? No, I was not. <laughs> I want to hear it's this kinda, whole story. It's, okay, it's, so it's kind of part of my story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to hear. Now you're now you you did really well. Now you're going to college. Talk to me. Okay, so college. so boom, finished prep school. I'm getting recruited to colleges in the East Coast. So Northeastern recruits me, and I ended up signing my letter of intent to go to Northeastern. And just to give you like my frame of mind at this time. I'm 100% like in my mind, I'm going to the NBA. That's the only goal. Like all of this sacrifice I'm doing, going to Mississippi, leaving home at 16, going to college in Boston, which is 3,000 miles away. All of it. You know, having seen my family. Place ever. Yep. Yeah. Well, Mississippi's not far. Mississippi's no. probably more racist, but different kind of racism. Different kind of racism. We'll that, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's actually a really good question or statement because leaving California too. For the first time and, and Moreno Valley is like a very multicultural, like I have, you know, friends of all races and we all get along to so going to Mississippi and realizing that even though this was probably 2005, they, they're very much so segregated there. Wow. So, and that was like new for me. Cause I'm like, and I had to kind of be like, my coach pulled me aside once and he was like, listen, this is not Cali. Like we, you know, we don't really mingle. And I'm like, it wasn't from a racist perspective. It was more so like from a protective perspective. And I was like, oh, really? And I, it, it was just like, well, okay, you guys still live like that. And to this day, it's very much so like that, you know? 
What was the makeup, the racial makeup at the prep school? I mean, were you alone or were there- Great question. There? So, my, so my school in particular was not was an all black school, right? It was, we had uh, primarily black Americans. We had some immigrants from some African countries, but it was all black. However, on the weekends, we get a chance to leave campus. I maybe have a basketball tournament or whatever we had, Walmart trips, just things like that that would get us off campus. So we'd have an opportunity to meet people and make friends and what have you. And it was in those moments that my coach was like, hey. Did he use the term, we don't do that in mixed company? No, it was more along the lines of we don't mingle with other people. (laughs) It was like that. Yeah. And it was, it just, I'm like, no, literally. And it was like, I'm from California. Like it's, you know, it's different, but in, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. So I was exactly like, okay. Mistake, just, you know what I mean? Yeah. But when you heard that, and it was protective and clearly said with love, but did it make you feel safe or unsafe to hear that? Well, I always felt safe because my campus was my campus. Like we were right. secluded and it was, but in terms of, so it wasn't a matter of safe and unsafe. It was more so, it just made me feel like, wow, the perspective here is way different. Right. And I am in the deep South. I, I recognize that much. And I, of course, I recognize the history of Mississippi and just racial tension in the South. So I was all I was fully aware of that. But to experience it and kind of see it manifest in a way where it's like, oh, they're still segregated. Like, it's not even like a big deal. It's just the way it is. It almost felt like time travel for me because, wow. you know, in California, it's we're so like we're lucky in the sense that it's like liberal and progressive and we have our own versions of racism here, but to see it raw there, it just was very, especially for a 16 year old, it was just very different to experience that for sure. So what happened when you went, well, I guess Lenya wants to know what happened. <laughs> well, why didn't you go to the draft? We should like get that out of the way. I get that out. <laughs> okay. I went to college and I'm coming in as a freshman and I'm like, you know, I'm confident, I'm eager. And I'm like, I'm going to the NBA, straight up. It's nothing, it's nothing to even talk about, right? So, and my freshman year didn't quite go how I planned, which was very challenging, like mentally challenging. Like when you have these aspirations and you sacrifice your whole life for something and you have this vision of what it's going to look like when you get there and like you just fall short tremendously and just you know I didn't have a good season like I I went from playing a little bit and not playing well to not playing that was like I can't even explain how devastating that was for me as a freshman and not really being that emotionally mature enough at that time to to how to like how do I deal with this adversity I was not emotionally mature enough I can admit that now in a lot of ways I it, it broke me in a lot of ways so that was my freshman year so I feel like I kind of gained, I regained myself somewhat my sophomore year and I felt better about myself and I, I felt like I can persevere, so to speak. And my sophomore year was very similar. And it was just like, what is happening? You know, like my dreams are like literally unraveling right before my eyes. So it was very challenging to say the least. So I ended up transferring and I went to American International College I played really well there. I excelled on the court, but I graduate in 2011 and 
I'm not getting drafted. I'm not really getting any NBA attention. But in my mind, I'm still very much so tied to the dream that I would somehow make it. Sure. Right? You hear all these stories of people who like went to smaller schools and still mm-hmm. kind of went to, through the back door and made it to the NBA. So I'm still hopeful. You know, I'm still hopeful during this whole time, but it didn't work out for me. And so I would say a couple of years after that, I was like, all right, this is not going to work out. And a lot of first generation kids saying, you know, fake it till you make it or, you know, go for it and just dream it and it'll happen. And you want to be that optimistic, but how do you put those really positive messages in perspective? Because you also don't want to be like, you shouldn't have and just do something stable, you know, just, you know, don't think too much of yourself. Don't try, don't try, don't shoot for the stars. You're only going to get burned. Like you don't want to be that. So how do you, how would you imagine? I mean, if you have a son who wants to go for the, go for basketball, I mean, what do you do? It's so difficult. It's so hard because to your point, what I never want to do is kill someone's dream. Like you have to dream. We all need a reason to get out of bed in the morning. We all need a reason to be excited about our days and about, you know, about life. So it's not, a, it's like finding that balance or walking that tightrope of the dream, but understanding like the reality of it too. And that's all about like my company and what I do now. And we'll get into that a little more, I'm sure. It's, it's about recognizing you can have your dream but also being prepared for like the inevitable transition that's going to happen. It's going to happen. Yeah. So it's about finding that balance between the two. I mean, I relate to that a lot as an educator. I can speak from it personally and as an educator, but as a professor, you have a student who's doing poorly and you see the writing on the wall that the person maybe they're going to get there. And yes, like you don't want to douse anybody's dream, but you see the writing on the wall in that it's going to be a really hard pull all the way through and probably always. And how do you gently let, say, a 23-year-old who's been really sure they want to be a lawyer, but they've never necessarily been in a law firm or done the work of a lawyer. So you know, you might suspect that it's a fake dream they have. You know what I mean? It's a cartoonish idea of what they really want in their lives and not real. And you don't want to dash the dream, but you also want to say, honest. you, you see, keep saying you hate reading, but do you realize that most of law is reading, you know? And so yeah. you have to make your peace with that, or you're going to be limited to certain kinds of careers, which maybe will work for you. I mean, it's a minefield because you do want to, encourage the person because maybe they can do it and there's lots of room at the table at least for lawyers right there's lots of room at the table for different kinds of lawyers then you have to figure out how to let that person know about the different seats at the table but it's complicated and I and personally I understand that journey of you know even like small ones and I wanted I very much was into math and science as a kid and I remember dissecting the fetal pig that I named Curtis and really decided I wanted to be a surgeon and at the same time I was waiting tables and I couldn't carry a tray of coffee 
But you know, it's interesting as a stylist, right? I get all of these offers for people to come in and intern or, you know, assist, or even when I was assisting and they have these ideas of what they think a stylist is or should be, or what the job is. And then, you know, they come in and on that first day, you know, immediately, like, this isn't the job for them. Just because you know how to dress yourself doesn't necessarily mean that you can dress someone else. Mm -hmm. And this is something that I think a lot of people, there's this, you know, disconnect. They think, but I dress so well, why, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but can you make this woman look as fabulous as she needs to look? You know what yeah. I mean? And not in your style, but in her yeah. style, right? And yeah. so, you know, I don't want to dash anybody's dreams either. Yeah. When they come to me, there is a big, you know, like creative element that if you don't have it, you don't have yeah. it. I can't teach yeah. you. Yeah. That's I true. It too, in school, like I taught styling. And you yeah. can immediately, oh God, you don't, I'm just wasting your money in this course. Yeah. You're absolutely right, first of all. But it's, it's like, how do we... Is there like a, is there a balance in that too, right? Because I'm sure, right, working in fashion, have you seen students maybe come in and they don't really have it, but you've seen them progress to a level where it's, wow, you really, you know, you actually blew me away or I judged, I prejudged you and you ended up being something that I, you've never seen that? Nope. Because you can okay. tell really immediately if they don't have it, but they may be, so they may not be able to do this part of fashion, right? Because this is the this is what everybody thinks is the glamorous part, is the yeah. styling. But they may be amazing with trends, spotting trends, and, or really great with investigative journalism. Because right. there, you know, in in fashion magazines, there is this whole component yeah. of, you know, journalism. Like I can't write an article about trends. But, you know, like I did notice there was a girl who, you know, she came to me after class and we talked and she was like, I would really love to assist you. And I said, well, we'll give it a try. She assisted yeah. me. I told her, sorry, it's not going to work out. And I was like, I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but maybe you should uh, figure out a different route. Maybe you're yeah. raw. Maybe you'd be a great um, designer or something. And together we did work out that she was an excellent trend forecaster. For some reason, right. she could pick up what the colors were from the streets because she was writing articles about, you know, I don't even know what the, what, you know how, what Bill Cunningham used to do before he passed away, how he would take pictures of people on the street and he could figure out the trends immediately just by the pictures of the people, what people are wearing and how they right. were. And she was really good at that. And she went on to go and, and work for Vogue. So would it be, Whose responsibility would it be, like in your world, to have an eye for that? Would would you, instead of killing the dream, would you say, hey, I think your strengths are in these other areas? What's that conversation like? Or whose responsibility is that? Well, I felt like it was my responsibility at the time because she wanted to come and assist me. You okay. know? But yeah. there is, at that school, they have, I guess, you know, counseling as to, you know, create career counseling. So mm -hmm. she could have gone to one of them, but because I already saw her work, I knew what she could do. But I mean, yeah. it is a lot of dashing dreams in the in the creative world, yeah. in the fashion world. And I suspect that it would be like that in writing as well. Yeah. Right, Alex? It's either you have it or you don't. I, I mean, I it depends though, because yeah. if you either you have it in the sense that, sure, if you're 
Philip Roth or Jonathan Lepham or Juno Diaz. Yeah, you've got a rhythm of language or Tanasi Coates, right? Like people who have like extreme like rhythm of language that just have chops like Mozart. But that doesn't mean if you're not Mozart, that doesn't mean you don't have a career as a composer. It just might mean you're a workhorse and you get better with each book. And, you know, one of my favorite writers, John Irving, who's extremely talented. I mean, he definitely has it, I guess. But if you look at his early work versus his later work, I mean, he was creating, first he was like writing songs and then later he's writing symphonies. And so I think there's a lot of room for for growth. It's not, talent can help, but I've always been a big believer in persistence. And so always that balance, right? So you can have and also then this is where you get into systems. So a there's statistics and I forget what they are, but that female science, like hard science and math PhD students tend to not finish. And you would think, oh, it's because they're female, they hit the wall. Turns out the whole system is male. And mm. so the whole idea and the whole concept, the whole system of how you get your PhD is very male and very competitive. And so lots of women actually just fall by the wayside because it just burns them out. It turns them off. It shuts them down. And now you have these programs coming out that are system or built a little differently and more women are getting through. And so, and it's not about lowering the standards. It's about changing what the expectations are. It's more meaning. It's more verbalizing. It's more checking in and it's not handholding. It's just a different setup. And so the idea is, and that's true for a law school education too. It was set up a certain way and now it's changing to actually open arms for more people to be in the tent. I think it's a little different when playing a sport with an MBA where it's it might be either you have it or you don't, but my suspicion is people play in the MBA just because they're workhorses and maybe they weren't 100% extremely just, you know, they're not going to be the Michael Jordan, but they're going to have a career. And I think it's hard. I mean, but Kende, going back to your story, do you feel like there should have been a coach or a mentor who took you aside and said, hey, what's your plan when you get out of the MBA or what's your plan if you don't make the MBA? Yes. So great question. Those types of statements you hear all the time. That that's the thing about it. Hey, what's your backup plan? Hey, keep your grades up. Hey, all the you hear all these sort of like blanket statements, and we all hear them. But I, what I think, what what I wish I had was some like an actual mentor, someone to like handhold me through my entire journey. Because as athletes, when you're coming up in this journey, like you are literally, I mean, it is tunnel vision. It's the only. It's just the way it is. Like. You sleep, eat, you dream this, like you dream it. This is all you know. So it's naturally you're pulled away from some of these other, I would say, either personal development, professional development opportunities, right? It's just, you don't like, there's just so many things I missed out on just having basketball practice or having to work out or even when I was in college, just so many things that like the, the school offered that. I couldn't even participate in because I just was consumed by basketball. So what I wish I had is someone, I don't see a coach being able to do this because naturally they're just compromised. Their job is to focus on you on the court. 
right? At the college level, they're hired to win games and to fill seats. And that's, I mean, they could care about you personally, but they're not going to be able to like make sure you're doing all of this stuff on the court and also handholds you for like stuff off the court. It's just a tough situation. So I wish I had somebody who was just focused on, okay, listen, you focus on the basketball. I'm going to make sure you have a transition program in place. I'm going to make sure it's my job to get to know you personally so we can figure out what your interests are. So we can figure out what you'd be good at. Those types of conversations, like a deep, like layered type of mentor who's there for me. I think that's missing in the sport. I think it's also needed. And to your point, Alex, like the blanket, hey, what are you doing after? What are your career goals? What do you want to major in? What do you, you hear it and you may even contemplate it, but it's just not enough to get the ball rolling. So do you think if you had to like think back to your 18 year old self and some person like came into your dorm room and said, well, what's your, if you had, if you weren't playing basketball, what would your dream job be? Like, let's, what would you say? Wouldn't you have laughed that person out of the room? Like you were so consumed and so sure of yourself. I would have laughed. I would have been like going to the NBA. What do you mean? What do you even, there's nothing even else. There's nothing else right now. There's nothing else. And I was, listen, I was a smart kid. I got good grades. Like it wasn't that, you know, like I was, of all the people I knew in the basketball world, I was one of the smarter ones. Like I got, I did my homework. I went to class. I didn't skip class. Like I really cared about school, <laughs> but it wasn't really a school thing. It was more like a mentally, what is your, do you have an aerial view of this whole lifestyle? You know, and I didn't, I just didn't. I was just tunnel vision with basketball. I keep my grades up, you know, but right after that, it was like back to the court and focused on the dream. You know what I mean? Like if you ran the world, like in this, in a situation like this would be part of any kind of college basketball program where the coach would also sell it in the sense that you're going to have practice and then you're going to be meeting with your transition coach. Yeah. Like, so sold from the get-go so there's more buy-in from the teenager is that absolutely I think it would yeah that's a really great point I think the earlier that's sort of introduced to the kid the better right because again by the time even at the college level it's great even if that was something that college is offered that'd be phenomenal but I even feel like to a certain extent to introduce it that late is sort of late it's sort of late there needs to be a paradigm shift first in the athlete you know what I mean like a a psychological like revamping first because and you see it every day like I I see it every day and I know how I was when I was that age by the time you're like 18 19 or in college it's full head of steam and at that level it's so important to be focused people don't realize this your scholarships in college are one year they're, they're literally one-year contracts. Like they're not, it's not a four-year thing. Yeah. Like they have to renew it every year. So you're literally playing for your scholarship. They don't really tell you that. That's awful. So yeah. then my other, so then in thinking about this though, I mean, how does this, how do you imagine? Because of course I love this idea because it's an all person approach to education, which I believe in for everybody. But how does this work when so many kids in poverty 
are playing a sport to get out of poverty? Like how does this messaging work with that? Well, see, that's where it's needed though, because these are the kids who even, so even if let's say they make it and they get to the NBA, they blow all their money. They don't know how to manage their life. They can't manage the fame. I mean, those kids need it. They need it from the early, they need to be grounded from high school. And know that there's another way out because if they, if I I feel like this is a big problem in, you know, the poor communities is that they don't see that there's another way out. It's basketball, rapping, drugs, Mm -hmm. right? And if, you know, we have to expose our kids to more, just more. And so if you came into a high school as their motivational leader. Personal development coach. Personal development coach, right? So, yes, yeah, so you're the personal development coach and you have them for one hour. All the athletes across the board, football, baseball, basketball, for one hour every day. And you do exactly what you said. What is it that you're interested in? Let's focus on what your goal and goal is going to be after basketball because you have to have a plan because nobody plays for the rest of their life. No one. That's the exact message. Yeah. What's the plan? Let's discuss this. And I think if you started in high school, I think we kids would we would have a, a more well-rounded individuals, and we'd have less of the controversies. I think because people would become more self-aware. Absolutely, I 100% agree with you. I think it was Frederick Douglass that said something like, "It's easier to raise strong children than it is to repair broken men." Yes. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that is just so powerful. Like. We have to reach these kids early. You have to. If, we're, if I want to make the impact that I, my, it's my vision to make, then it starts, I would even say as early as eighth grade. Like, you would be shocked. Yeah. Listen, we, kids are smart, okay? And we, like, I feel like a lot of adults, we tend to, like, oh, they're not ready for that, or we like to, like, coddle and baby. If these kids, like, if I express to you how hard these kids work, for a dream that can't even transpire for 10, 15 years. Mm-hmm. If a kid is able to internalize that and work towards that, then they're not too young to start thinking about what would happen um, after basketball or what career paths are. They're not too young. No. We just have to teach, we have to instill it in them. It's just that simple. So I feel like if we can, and again, and I'm writing a book right now called Transition Game. And part of the point I'm making is that this is not just on the kids. It's a cultural thing. We all need to be accountable for this. Like, I think parents play an incredibly important role. Coaches play an important role. Fans, mm-hmm. right? They may not care because they're just fans, but they play an important role. How do fans play a role in this? It's not to say that they need to change anything because I don't think you can hold a fan accountable. But part of the role that fans play is that they're literally fascinated and obsessed with this athlete for what they do on the court. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the extent of their experience with that player. And it feeds the player's ego. It feeds their sense of identity, right? All of this, everyone likes to feel appreciated for what they do, right? So when you're getting all of this love and, and, you know, like you're being like recognized in newspapers and you go to college after hitting a game winner and everyone's chanting your name and all this stuff, it doesn't register to the athlete that like, this is like a conditional thing, Mm. right? Like they're just soaking it all up so that it does something to you psychologically. It it, it makes you buy into this identity more and more. 
And when you experience this for 15, 20 years, I'm telling you, like, when you're done, when the ball stops bouncing and you have to disassociate yourself from this sport you've played your whole life and you're going into the real world, like, it's a transition. I can tell you a quick story, even for myself. When I was going into the office, you wouldn't believe how many sort of like micro comments I'd hear like, you should be in the NBA. Oh my gosh, look how tall you are. Like, why aren't you, like, why are you here? Why are you working here? And I would laugh. I'm so used to hearing it and I've realized the the psychology behind it. So I feel like I'm able to internalize that. But if I wasn't me, I'd be insulted by that. Or I'd feel a way about those type of comments. You know what I'm saying? So because it's so hard to to disassociate yourself from what you've done for so long. So that's an example of how fans play a role. They probably don't even think twice about it, but it's a reality of this basketball culture. And so I feel like there's so many different pieces of the puzzle that we need to help kids be aware of, right? Not to kill your dream or to make you discouraged. I would definitely say that, you know, what are you doing here? You're tall. You should be playing basketball. Really, it sounds like a microaggression to me. But I, because it is. that really just sounds like, you know, I don't know. It really just sounds you are articulate or something. It's just a shitty comment. It's terrible. But meanwhile, I'm thinking about every tall person I might have insulted in my life if I've said that. <laughs> um, but I'm wondering, were the speakers white mostly who said that or were they all different races? All non-black. All of them oh, non-black. Geez. Every single last one. It was to a point, I would text Zara like, I'm so excited to see what microaggression I'm going to hear today. It was like clockwork. We would laugh. Guess what they said today? Someone said, why aren't you in the NBA? Like, it was like every day. (laughs) What do you, can I ask, what do you say when somebody says that? I mean, you're just, you're cheerful. So I imagine you laugh it off, but. Yeah, I, I laugh it off. I'm just. Everyone's different. I'm the kind of person I, I like, I'll internalize it. So in my head, I'm like, are you like, you idiot? Are you serious? But my facial expression is a laugh and I like, it just rolls off of me, whatever. We make a joke about it. That was uh, my style. That's but what he is. Lenya, he's young. Sorry, we're making it. But don't take that as an aggra- microaggression of any kind. <laughs> but, you know, see yeah. if you're making the same comments at 40. If you're yeah, laughing. Yeah, let me tell you, I got lots to say. I have a pen. <laughs> I have a, not going for it. <laughs> no, because I get all kinds of microaggressions about all kinds of things in the fashion industry. Yeah. You know, it's a little bit better now, but in the beginning, I guess because the culture is you're so lucky to be there, you're so lucky to be involved, yeah. to be in, in, amongst this group that you don't say anything. But now I challenge everything. If somebody yeah. says something to me that I even think is a microaggression, I would say, and why would you say something like that? What, what, what <sighs> especially if they're white, if especially if they're white, I am like, what makes you think you can say that to me? You know what? And that, and you know. I don't got the energy. And and if they want to call me an angry black woman. <laughs> I, I feel you 100%, like, but I don't feel like I have the energy. Like, it's it, it'd be an all day affair. I wouldn't yeah. be doing my job if I was. <laughs> yeah. But eventually enough people would figure it out that they would. Yeah eventually yeah. take some time right like now yeah. people don't ask me stupid questions especially <laughs> the ones that see me all the time they don't ask me stupid questions because they know they're gonna you're get going for it. and i'm not gonna yeah. have it you know no they- you're right so now we're on office communications i have another question it came up in a previous podcast recording that i 
and we talked about code switching. So I have to ask the question, do you code switch? 100 percent person in the I'm world code, code switches alex every yeah. every black person world i know but you i'm have the, asking i'm looking for the unicorn so oh uh, i don't know i mean you might have a couple but I, in my opinion as a black american as somebody i would even say as a minority but i would specifically for black people we don't have the luxury of not being able to code. Like you have this embedded in us. Like you have to be able to code switch. You in can't survive. Opinion. Yeah. <laughs> can't survive. It's a real thing. <laughs> do, you, do you ever envision a future where that wouldn't happen? I don't know. I, like I, I don't. I don't. No, it's not always a bad thing. You go yes. ahead, Anya. No, I was going to say, it's not, it's like, it's always going to be something that Black people have with each other that we should always have. Sure. I feel like it, it helps also build our community, which has its problems as well. You know, so I, I don't mind code switching with my community. There is something to be said for speaking. I don't, I'm not going to, I'm going to say speaking properly and with the authority and having manners that, so you, you know, American. Is, now you mean speaking British English? <laughs> no, just, but just, but just speaking normally, you know, and just being able to get your idea across and understood universally, that is very important. So I think that will always be something, you know, I think code switching is always going to be around. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, another question. You're first generation Nigerian American. Do you consider yourself, you know, when you say, do you say I'm Nigerian American or do you say like I'm black? Like how do you self-identify? Yeah, I, I'm probably nine times out of 10, I'm saying I'm Nigerian American for sure. So, but you, it doesn't matter. You have the experience as a black man in America, whether or not you... Right descended from slaves or you came a generation ago from Nigeria. Yeah. I'm interested in your parents' experience of the concept of code switching because there's, it's a culture, it's, you know, it's moving, it's a cultural immersion into American society where now there's separate cultures that they have to figure out and master and do they talk about that experience much? Was that laid on you or? I have my Nigerian name. So my tribe in Nigeria is the Yoruba tribe. So I have my Yoruba name and then my parents gave me an English name, which is Alan, right? And depending on where you know me from or whatever, you might call me Kende, you might call me Alan. To me, that's a version of code switching. Like my parents wanted to sort of hold on to what culturally means a lot to them, right? And right. preserve that for their kids. But they also wanted us to be able to properly assimilate into America. So I had, you know, all my friends, like when I was a kid, my white friends, they called me Alan, right? So that's, to me, that's that's like a Nigerian or a first generation's version of code switching. And it's crazy too, because code switching is like a spectrum. Like when I'm with my Nigerian family, like I talk and interact differently. And we listen to different music and we do different things. We eat different food, right? And I'm with when I'm with my black friends, I'm probably more my authentic self, right? 
But when I'm with other friends, I I just adjust to based based on my like. So I don't see it as a bad thing. I see it as the ability to like sort of interact with different cultures, which I think is actually great in my personal opinion. So, but I've seen my parents do the same thing, really, because like I hear my dad talking to his friends like back in Nigeria or whatever, and he's he's not even the same person. He's loud, like he's super loud. He's super animated. And then when he's talking to somebody here doing business, he's like quiet and he's soft-spoken. So it's, I feel like it's just this thing that like everyone probably sort of does. They may not even recognize it. So it's interesting though. When you talk about it like that, you know, in a sense that everybody has a different persona, but what makes it code switching and what you and Lenya both earlier said is that you don't have a choice. It's for survival. It isn't just for plain old adaptability. I might have savviness that I can adapt myself to different communities, but I don't need to do so. And that's Correct. a privilege. Like, I don't need to do that. And unfortunately, you do. And that's... Yeah, that's, I have a funny story. Yeah. <laughs> Because the survival, that word triggered this. Sure. So I remember applying for jobs out of college, okay? And not getting any callbacks. And the name of my resume was Kende Aragbae, okay? And I was just like, why am I not getting callbacks? Let me try something new. And something just told me to put Alan Ken. Don't know why I did it. Don't know why I did it. But all of a sudden, I started getting a lot of callbacks. And maybe it was just coincidence. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. No, it wasn't. And it wasn't. I looked it up. There's like an article on this. If you have a foreign name, Mm -hmm. the likelihood of you getting. And I was like, oh, this is a real thing. So when I went in for the interview, she was like, oh, your name is. And I was like, oh, it's just like a cultural thing we do. It's not like my name is. And I sort of talked my way through it. But she noticed that my name was not what I put on the resume. But it was just funny to me. It was like, wow, did they really, like, what just happened here? We talk about resumes all the time at the law school. And one, I think another problem was not only was it a foreign sounding name, they also probably couldn't tell from reading it what gender you were. Mm-hmm. So that is the ex. So they're like, I have no idea what this resume is. What's going on here? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't, like, is it is it female? Is it male? I, wow. I find that you need to... Even with people who are older, like who are graduating law school, say in their 40s or 50s, I can only imagine that as a six foot four tall black man, you're going to make an impact in a likelihood majority white office. That is just yeah. to end up what's going what on. Is. But sure, you are not the first person to be on this podcast to talk about how hard it was to get a job out of college as a black man. And what's sad is that you graduated college 20 years after David did. So what's frightening is that for everyone who keeps saying it's better. It's not. It's not better. Better for who? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You're 20 years younger in the same place. Do you feel like moving forward and like you're growing this business as an entrepreneur, like how do you see that you can use race 
to help you? Like you, and how do you, what barriers do you anticipate? Or maybe you've already had barriers thrown up. My whole like overarching goal, like my whole passion is to really help as many black kids as possible. I'm sure it's, it's common knowledge, you know, black Americans pretty much dominate football and basketball is 70% in college is 80% of NBA players are African-American. So I'm going into this venture knowing that the demographic I'm going to be helping are people like me, people who look like me. So that's like really exciting. I know that as, as far as pushback or like some of the, I would say, yeah, I would say pushback that I could receive. I, I'm fully aware that like the NCAA, which is of course the institution that's not really, they don't care. I don't, and even to a lesser degree, college, like universities and colleges, like when you look at the business behind athletics in college, it really is inherently racist. I don't think it's like openly racist, but if you just look at like the amount of money being made at the expense of black athletes, sure. I mean, there's a lot of parallels there, right? And so I look at it and I ask myself like, all this money being made, the NCAA makes like a billion dollars every March for March Madness, which is the college basketball tournament. What do the athletes really get in return? Yeah, they get a free education. Yeah, that's great. I agree. I mean, I do think that college athletes should be paid. Well, I have bigger opinions, like we should just wipe it off the face of the earth and just have it. <laughs> <laughs> college sports is bigger than the actual professional sports, Alex. Absolutely. Yeah. But the other thing is like, what if the NCAA and, and all those stakeholders say, well, you're getting a free college education, but like you just said, even being a good student who got good grades, you didn't have time to really take advantage of everything. And I had related to you when we talked, but when I was teaching at USC and I was teaching freshmen, I had a USC basketball player in my class and he was his dad had played pro he was clearly planning on going pro I don't know what happened but he had a shadow I think I told you that was assigned to him and he would like the the person would look in the classroom to make sure he was there so his attendance was checked and he wasn't a bad student but the truth was he was completely invested in his basketball life as he should be to keep his scholarship or whatever he needed to do and there really wasn't time in his life to take advantage of everything that USC had to offer. So, I, you know, it almost feels like you should get a scholarship to go. And then when you're ready to take part, you get a free two years extra. You know what I mean? If you want to go back yeah. to college, whenever you're transitioning out of basketball, that you get to go and take the art class and the journalism class and go to the go to the speaker series for free and go to the plays and experience just, you go to a liberal arts school and you want to take advantage of all the things they have to offer. And mm -hmm. while I chose to just smoke pot in college and, not, and work and not go to any of those things, you actually couldn't do it. And, right. and that actually, that's what smacks me is the big lie. Like it's yeah. a lie. Like you get a free trip to college. Well, you get to play for us and you get to yeah. in classes and yeah. it's not the same because what you sell with a liberal arts education is 
the campus life of participating and having your going to a fireside chat with some philosophy yeah. or and having your head blown with all the possibilities that's yeah. what it should be so what do you think the outcome will be if they start paying players though i mean how do you think that'll change the game i don't think they can they can i don't think they can i don't think i don't, I don't think that's ever and i've done a lot happen. of research in this area, there's a book I just read recently. It's called like Saturday Night Millionaires, something like that. And it's about the business of college football. But it talks a lot about the business of college basketball as well. And all the different nuances and how these schools are structured and they're all nonprofits and just so many different variables. I personally don't think you can pay players without collapsing the current system. So unless we just want to go straight revolutionary mode and just cripple the whole thing, which I don't think people are prepared to do, that's a different conversation, then I don't think you can pay players. I think, so what's re- what's happening now, and I'm not sure if you guys are aware, they just passed something called NIL, which is name, image, and likeness. Are you guys aware of that? Well, I'm yeah. aware of the issue. I'm not aware of what's been passed. So for since forever, college players or amateur athletes, they, they never owned their name, image, or likeness. The NCAA has just agreed to allow players to make money on their own from their own name, image, and likeness. Something that's been unconstitutional and un-American for years. They've finally come around to this. So this is a really big win. Huge. Huge. And we don't know what it's going to look like yet because we don't really know like the rules of the road, so to speak. But this is huge. Not just for the guys who are going to the NBA. But even the lower level people, like there's going to be a lot of opportunities to make money. Like you can sell your own merch. You can run your own camps. Like you can do stuff like that. So that's going to be great. You know, there's a little more equity in that equation. Well, sure. And all those video games that come out. Right. But use the likeness of the players. Yeah. Be able to get money from that as well. Right. So if they were to make one of those, they haven't made, they discontinued those games. But if they were to make it again. They would have to pay. They would have to pay the current athletes. So, it's it's a good win. I think um, it's going to be important to teach athletes because I think it's effective this year actually, 2021. Okay. So it's going to be new for a lot of kids. We got to see. And here's it's tough though because again we talk about the demand of a college athlete, of a student athlete. There's not a lot of wiggle room there at all. I can tell you firsthand. So to throw in this NIL equation where kids have to sort of make this new law work for themselves, where are they going to find the time to do it? I, I just, we'll see how it looks. We'll see. No, I don't know. It, it's true. Well, that just means then every college athlete is going to be swarmed with agents who are going to be hungry for 15 yeah. or whatever percentage is of that take. And that is yeah. just added work and also it's going to be rife with teenagers getting taken advantage of. And let's face it, it's going to be poor teenagers getting taken advantage of, which then let's face it, black teenagers being taken advantage of because there's just no other way that works. You're right, because an 18-year-old who's good at b-ball is going to have this chance to do something. And then who's going to set all that up and who's going to negotiate and then who's going to come swooming in and saying, I'll help you do it? 
Of course. And there's no education Mm. for that. I mean, that's why we need you in the schools, in the high schools now. Yeah, absolutely. To be honest with you, hearing about NIL even makes me more passionate about what I'm trying to do because, I mean, listen, this is a, it's fun and it's equitable and it sounds great, but there's going to be a big responsibility putting this on athletes' shoulders. So yeah. they need to be educated. They need to, they, they just need to understand what they're getting themselves into outside of basketball. Like I wish we can just run up and down the court and have fun and nothing else is happening, but there's so many other things happening simultaneously. And we just need to educate parents, coaches, players on how to be prepared to handle all of that. And then also ensure that when this is all over, right? Because this is a glaring statistic. 99% of college basketball players will not go to the NBA. 99%. And we don't talk, this is like the most astonishing number ever that no one fully like understands. So with that in mind, not to discourage you, but how do we empower you using that data? Like now that you know, this is what the numbers are. How do we prepare you to deal with this reality? That's what I want to do. And I feel like with NIL or paying athletes, whatever they choose to do, that's still going to be important, that mm-hmm. factor. So, How many kids go on to play college ball, do you know? I don't know that number, no. But so from high school to college, I'm sure it's probably, I don't know, low. <laughs> yeah, well, I just wondered because when we were talking about you, and I know other athletes do this, and I know ballet dancers you know, do this, ice skaters, all sorts of athletes, And even musicians, especially when we think about violin or classical piano, really you start at such an early age and what you need to give up. And it's almost as if these, this group of this sector of the population has an entire career before 18, where the average kid just gets to have a life before the age of 18. And I do think that there is likely conversation worth having about really calling it the career you know it's Mm. it's sort of the idea is yeah you had a career from five to to 18 where you just gave your all to this one thing I mean we just have such a narrow view right of what career means it means you have to earn money we have we have because it's not a hobby like what you did from five to 18 was not a hobby Mm-hmm. me playing flute and I did play seriously in the sense that I practiced all the time I went to band camp insert joke here you know I took it very seriously I played in the orchestra the band in marching band I played in college but still it was a hobby you know I had time for everything else I wanted to do I I had it fit my time some years it was more important than others I didn't sacrifice very much for it at all So in that sense, it was a hobby. I love doing it. I still pick it up every once in a while and play. But they're they're not the same. And I do feel like we need to come up with a new word to describe what that experience is to devote a portion of your life that you spend doing that might not yield a monetary result at the end. How do you give it the respect it deserves so we can give those people the respect it deserves? It's powerful. You know? That's so powerful. Because think about what it might be if you put it on a resume, 
right? Be on your resume that you've been playing basketball since you were five and that the sacrifices and the focus that you have, because to me, that makes you more hireable with a certain mindset than someone who's done all the right things like on paper, but doesn't really have the internal grit necessary Mm. to do it or the focus ability to sacrifice for one thing or you know the ability to get up at five in the morning like we did before we started recording but just that drive to sort of make the decision and then just do it we don't actually give enough respect and I'm not it's basketball players but I think it's to any of those careers where you need to start five gymnasts you need to start at three or you know it's or it's over you can't just start picking it up later and and dancers cheerleaders cheerleaders you know that is a job that doesn't get any respect and that is a job like have you seen that documentary on netflix called cheer no i thought about it oh my god yeah please watch it okay i blew me away i i knew i had nothing i knew nothing about cheerleading and after i watched that i was like whoa like it's serious Mm -hmm. and they start at three and they're yeah. done at 18 19 it's over and they're well, like depressed they pro like they, if they do the dallas cowboys or if they like you know the basketball like if, if but there's so it's a very small percentage community. like mm-hmm. going to the nba yeah very small percentage but even then even if you go pro your body can only handle so much because you've been doing this for so long absolutely you know absolutely. and, and-, and what do you think about the fact that there are no major black CrossFit athletes. Considering how athletic Black people are in general, don't you think this is some weird bullshit that there is absolutely no... (laughs) Tell them, Lenya, tell them. I've been saying this for years. I've been saying this for years. I feel there has to... Racism has to have played some point why you do not see a major Black athlete. And then I follow Elizabeth Ikenwale. She was the first Black woman to really like make a career out of being a CrossFitter. And that was eye-opening. Some of the things that she said that she had to, to in, you know, deal with when she went to the CrossFit games. And she actually retired. And when she retired, it's really, if you ever watch any of the old CrossFit games, they, there'll be events where she wins the event, but they give her next to no coverage. They give coverage to like the white blonde girl. Mm. She got no sponsorships. Yeah. You know, whereas there's this dumb girl from Boston whose name I can't remember, who is part of that group up there that, you know, trains with Katrin Davis daughter. If you're not in, you're not, you haven't drunk the Kool-Aid yet, so you don't know their yes. names. <laughs> anyway, there's this group that's up in Boston and they train together. And this girl, she has never won. She is sponsored by everybody. She's number one. And it's the same in powerlifting, right? We have some of the most amazing black powerlifters and they don't get the same sponsorship as the little blonde girl. So there's still a lot of, there's so much racism in sport. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say I'm not surprised to hear that. (laughs) Yeah, but at least with basketball and football, it's like undeniable. You see them all over the, you can't, there's no amount of racism that is going to deny the fact that the black players are superior. Yeah. 
there's just, there's no amount of it. If they want to win, this is what they got to do. But with CrossFit, because it's a one person sport, you know, competing against yourself, really, I think that racism can clamp down the African-American community. And it's interesting when you see gymnasts, how long it took for Gabby Douglas and for Simone Biles, I think, again, because racism could really clamp down. Yeah. I mean, I think bias comes into all of it. There was, and this sounds really weird, but did anybody see the I, Tanya Harding movie? I saw I, Tanya. Oh, yeah. Peter, who whose boyfriend hired somebody to hit Nancy Kerrigan with a baton. But what's interesting is they talk about all the implicit bias in ice skating, not only, you know, for white people, but a certain body type of a white person and a certain class or the perceived class. Because I guess somebody said that Nancy Kerrigan Mm -hmm. often came from working class roots. It isn't that she came from a wealthy background, but you could fix her up and dress her up to look like she looked like a princess. And Anya Harding was extremely athletic looking and didn't play the game that way. And, you know, she just couldn't catch a break. And you just see the bias come out all the time. So I I think you're right, Lenya. I don't have, I'm not surprised either that happens. But I also think that sports that require money to get forward. Are- but ice skating is also a perfect example of why you don't see a lot of black people. And I don't understand that as well, because I, I mean, there was one in France and she was beautiful. Oh my God. It looked like ballet on ice, but one, you know what I mean? To Alex's point, is it a money thing? Do you think it's because, you know, people are from certain areas, I guess, lower can't afford it? Is that? possibly part of it because i know I'm with basketball sure. you don't need anything for basketball you just get a ball and go work on your game outside you know what i'm saying so yeah is it i mean i'm sure that's thing? a bit of it it's yeah. the same with equestrian events you don't see any you know <laughs> black uh, people doing dressage in the equestrian events because it's such an expensive sport yeah that's why there's no that's why there's only one black formula one driver because it's such yeah. an expensive you know thing that's why everybody made such a big deal out of the Williams sisters when they came on the scene because yeah. there are public tennis courts everywhere, but tennis rackets get expensive and training gets very expensive very quickly. So I do think that sports that require money are going to be a barrier for everybody, but going to be a, a special barrier for anybody of color because in facing any sort of systemic racism, actual racism, implicit bias, I mean, think of all the barriers you're throwing up. It isn't just economic, but once you throw that up too, then you also just have, you're in the fourth grade and you're hanging out with your friends and you want to ice skate or do you want to go do what, yeah. what everybody's doing? You know what? Yeah. Community's doing because I also well, that's your parents. That's your parents, though, Alex. Because a lot of those kids that start early at four, five, six, they have parents that are pushing them to do. That's when the absolutely. parents. Absolutely, I would be curious. So we don't have anybody. So my one of my really good friends, Steve, his dad was an ice hockey player, and so you know, I he played. So Steve played ice hockey growing up. I mean, he didn't. He didn't play like with the intention of, of going on to play professionally, but it was like he grew up in Michigan. 
it's in the blood in that sense that it, it's north. And I guess I'd be curious in testing this hypothesis that we're talking about is like how many kids, how many black kids in northern Michigan or even in Detroit are are playing ice hockey. I don't see any black people playing high. I don't either. I might have seen a handful. handful. Yeah, but what? That makes me curious, right? Because that's then, because that is the sport of the North. That is a sport in the North. And it's moneyed in the sense that you got to get to a rink or buy ice skates. But truth be told, it's, you can just go out to the pond when it's cold and just play, right? So I find it interesting, and in my sense is that there are prejudicial barriers there, bias barriers there. There's just no other reason. I also think in the areas where Black athletes are the predominant force, basketball and football primarily, I also think there's a level of recruiting that happens Like once it's established that, oh, this is a billion dollar corporation or this is a billion dollar business or we can profit X amount of dollars from this sport that the fans are just loving, then there's that incentive to go seek the people who can actually perform this sport. So I think it's a money thing too. Like the exploitation only gets worse the more money is behind it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a factor too. What's next for you in transitions? So right now, I we are finalizing um, my website, and we're going to start doing, like, workshops. And I'm really excited about the workshops because it's going to be an opportunity to, like, partner with kids, but not only kids. As we talked about earlier, like, I, re- I really want this to be, like, a, a cultural message. So I really want to look forward to the opportunity to partnering with parents as well, as well as coaches. And so I feel like there is an approach each party can have as it relates to sort of handholding the athlete through this. The athlete can't do it themselves, especially at a certain age. It's like you, you can't, the, the message, like to your point, we need buy-in. And I think that buy-in needs to come from like players and parents and coach. Like I need, it needs to be a communal thing. So I'm very much so looking forward to partnering with parents and, and coaches and kids and getting that message out there. And then also sort of like figuring out creative ways that like, each party can be a better help to, to the athlete. So that's what's coming now. I'm still writing the book, as you know. And so hopefully that can be done this year. I'm ambitious about that, but yeah, so. Have you thought about approaching the Los Angeles Board of Education? Um, yeah, I have, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, th- I think right now, I, like for the first couple of months of this year, because I have a pretty good network of like basketball coaches who like have travel ball teams and. I even like a lot of my good friends are like college coaches now. What makes sense to me is like reaching out to my immediate network mm-hmm. and partnering with those areas and seeing if I can offer, be of service in these environments. And then from there, like really getting that name and brand and narrative out there and then just continuing to expand from there. So that's my little plan, but we'll see like things change and I'm just ready to pivot at w- whenever I need to. You're going to do great. How can people follow you on social media? You can follow me on Instagram at transition G. So the word transition and the letter G. Twitter is the same. And my website, which is currently being worked on, is going to be transition-g.com. Okay. So you can follow me in all those places. 
We'll have that all in the show notes, but I yes. just wanted you to be able to shout it out. You guys are a vibe though. I had a blast and I hope we can probably do this again or something or after oh, like yeah. COVID, figure something out. Oh yeah, yes. like for sure. We're womenbridgingthegap.com. That's what we are, right? Women bridging- yes, we're rid- women bridging the gap, and we're on everything: Instagram, Facebook. We drop every Wednesday. Everybody, listen yes. and pass it on. Thank you. Thank you, ladies. Bye. Bye, everybody.